Hi, everyone. It has been so lovely to be with you this weekend. I've been made to feel so welcome, and it's been lovely to connect to different ones of you. And it's been great to be able to wrestle together in different contexts with some really big, really important topics, really big areas of life. And we're going to continue to today by thinking about the topic of identity. Identity is so key, isn't it? And when we think about identity, we so often start with the question, who am I? And who am I is a good and important and very human question. And in my own life, the question, who am I, has been incredibly kind of prominent and important for me to ask. At different times, I've had to ask the question, who am I, and wrestle with it in different ways. There was a time in my childhood when I'd reached the conclusion that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body, and I was wrestling, what do I do about that? I was asking the question, who am I? I reached my teenage years, and as I began to develop romantic and sexual attractions, I discovered that I was attracted to guys rather than girls, that I'm gay or same-sex attracted. And there again, there were lots of things I was having to wrestle with, was what does this mean about who am I? Who am I? Some people seem to think this is a terrible thing about me. Some people seem to think it was the best thing about me. Who am I in this experience I was having, I was wrestling with? And then I reached the middle of my um, 20s, and I had a fairly major kind of mental health crisis, something of a breakdown into quite a season of deep depression, and ended up through that in counselling. And one of the things I discovered was going on is that I had a really unhealthy and destructive sense of identity. That even though I would have given you the good Christian answer to the question, who am I? What I really believed deep down in the core of my being was that I was a freak and a weirdo. I thought everyone thought that. I totally assumed that was true because everyone thought that. And I didn't really like or love myself or believe that anyone really liked or loved me or even actually really believe that God liked or loved me. I had to really wrestle with the question, who am I? Who am I has been such a prominent question for me in lots of different ways. And for all of us across the room, different one of us will have wrestled this question, experienced this question in different ways because identity is so important. And maybe it's worth actually just quickly pausing to think, well, what are we talking about when we talk about identity? It's one of those words and one of those concepts, isn't it, that we talk about all the time, we think about and hear about all the time, and yet we rarely stop to think, what do we actually mean by that? And that often ends up, we kind of talk past each other by talking about different things. But what I'm talking about today, when I'm talking about identity, the helpful phrase I've used to kind of define it is it's our controlling self-understanding. All that means is it's our self-understanding, how we uh, view ourselves at the kind of the core of our being, who we believe ourselves to most truly be. And that is controlling in the sense of who you truly believe yourself to be will inevitably influence your feeling and influence your thinking and influence your living. It has kind of inevitable outworkings in your experience of life. And so in that sense, it's controlling. It's our sense of self, and that has impacts on our life, our controlling self-understanding. And when it comes to identity like that, I think, who am I, is the prominent question we first think of. And it's a prominent question in our culture, isn't it? We see it all around us in kind of discussions about self-worth and self-esteem, around mental health, around body image. We're told in our culture about the importance of being true to ourselves, finding who we really are and being true to ourselves, whether that be in regards to sexuality and gender or a whole host of other things. Who am I is such a prominent question That's such an important question because it's by finding our best identity and living out our best identity that we get to find and experience our best life. Who am I is so important, but I don't actually think it's the starting point. You see, I think there's a question we need to ask before we ask, who am I? And that's the question, how do I find who I am? 
You can't answer, who am I, until you've thought through, well, wait a minute, how am I going to work out, how am I going to find who I am? And that's a question we often forget to ask and we overlook. And even though we live out an answer to it, we've not actually stopped to ask it. But I think it's answering that question which is most helpful to us as a starting point. And it's at that point that we find that we as followers of Jesus have a radically different answer to the question than people around us. But actually that answer is a good life-giving answer and part of the good news that we get to share with the world around us. And so what I want to briefly do is just try and help us think about two ways that people in the world around us and many of us might actually form our sense of self, might answer that question, how do I find who I am? But then we're going to open the Bible together and say, what does the Bible say about this? And what's the good news that the Bible has for us when it comes to identity? So let's briefly touch on two ways our culture answers this question, how do I find who I am? One really prominent answer would be that others decide. How do I find who I am? Well, others decide who I am. My sense of self is shaped by what other people think of me, or at least what I assume other people think of me. Because let's be honest, we often don't really actually know what people think of us. And the idea here, lying behind this, is kind of the idea there's some sort of um, criteria, some sort of expectations you're meant to live up to. And it's like people are kind of checking the boxes of, do we meet this thing? Do we meet that thing? Are we like this? It might be a set of laws, or often it's just like these assumptions in a society what it means to be a good person or a successful person or whatever it might be. And the idea is people kind of evaluate us against these, cri- against these criteria. They make a judgment and we then absorb their judgment and that shapes our sense of how we feel about ourselves. And so if we do really well and we kind of tick lots of the boxes, we get a good sense of self, a healthy sense of identity. But of course, actually, if we don't do so well, we kind of fail on the criteria it can so easily give us a bad sense and unhealthy sense of self. And so, for example, it could be the expectations of our parents or our family or our community. We might be seeking to be a, a good son or daughter or a good part of our community. And we think, yeah, people evaluate me and I do well. People think well of me. People think I'm a good person or I play my part in my family, my community. It gives me a good sense of self, a good sense of worth. Or actually, it might be, no, people in my family think I'm a failure. People in my community actually think I've, I've not lived up to their expectations. And it can be a crushing sense of, of, of shame or a sense of having let people down. We're so easily shaped by the expectations of our family or our community and what we think people think of us. Or it can happen with a sort of kind of our work or employment or how we use our time. It might be that we have a type of job that we think, yeah, people are really impressed by me because of my job. It might be we think, actually, no, I don't think people are very impressed by the type of job I do. It might be actually that you feel really kind of a strong sense of self because actually you are one of the high-flying people in your workplace. You do really well. Or actually, it might be you're really struggling at work and you think, no, people think I'm just not doing very well. And it gives you a bad sense of self. In all these kind of different ways, all sorts of areas of life, we're really susceptible to absorbing from other people a sense of self based on how they might evaluate us and judge us. And that seems to me to be a really common way that people in the world that we're living in form our sense of selves, and many of us might find we're doing that too. But the problem is when we stop and think about that way of answering this question, it's not really very good news for us. You see, what we want with an identity is we want it to be solid and static, you know, kind of unchanging. We want it to be life-giving and good news for us. And that so often isn't the case of letting other people decide who we are. 
There's no guarantee here that it's going to be a healthy, life-giving identity because there's no guarantee that people are going to think well of you. And even if they think well of you right now, what if actually one day you make a big mistake and suddenly they're not thinking so well of you, your identity comes crashing down, you easily end up with bad identities here. That's what happened to me. When I was believing I was a freak and a weirdo, I'd wrongly assumed that everyone was kind of evaluating me against the criteria for being normal, and I fell short, and so obviously that rendered me as a freak and a weirdo. It can go really badly. This can give us really unhealthy identities. Also puts us under a lot of pressure. Because think about it. This is basically about impressing other people so they think well of you. Well, how many of us can always keep up the acts to keep on impressing people? The pressure is all on us of day after day, I've got to get it right, I've got to keep hitting that target, or people are going to think badly of me. That's just huge pressure, that's exhausting, that's stressful for us. And also it's really insecure, because you might have a really good identity today, but you can make a big mistake, or people could change their mind about you, or you might begin to doubt what people think about you, and suddenly a good identity can come crashing down There's no security. You can never just rest thinking, I know who I am and this is okay, because at any point it could change. Others decide is a really common answer to how do I find who I am, but it's also a really unhealthy, unhelpful one for us. And so we might want to consider a different approach. Another approach in our kind of culture, certainly a modern Western culture like in the UK at the moment, would be to say, how do I find who I am? I decide. Actually, I'm the one who gets to choose. And the way that tends to work is we're told to look inside ourselves. What are your feelings? What are your desires? And that's the real you. That's your true self whom you need to be true to. And so we're told to discover ourselves by looking inside. And we're told to basically reject anything outside. Doesn't matter what other people think or say. Doesn't matter what your body says. Doesn't matter what any tradition or religion or community says. What matters is what you say based on what you find inside. And that's an idea that's being preached to us all the time in the kind of culture around us. In TV and filming, song lyrics, all, song lyrics all over the place, we're being told, look inside yourself, find yourself and be true to yourself. There was a film when I was a kid, it's quite old now, called Babe the Sheep Pig. You remember that? Which was about a pig that felt like it was a sheepdog. And this pig is the hero of the film because it embraces its inner sense of self. I'm a sheepdog. And it kind of rejects the restrictions of its piggy biology and embraces its true self as a sheepdog. That was teaching kids like me exactly this narrative. It doesn't matter what your body says, what other people say. Who you are is the you inside. You get to decide who you are. Or I think the quintessential example, actually, in current popular culture is from the great philosopher of our day, Mr. Walt Disney, and his princess or Queen Elsa from Frozen. Elsa is a hero of our culture because she bravely embraces what she finds inside, rejecting everything that other people think or want and rejecting the things on the outside. And that song she sings, Let It Go, which was such a phenomenon when it came out, I'm convinced part of the reason it was such a big deal when it came out was because it kind of perfectly uh, encapsulates this kind of idea in our culture of you've got to embrace who you are inside and be true to yourself. Because it's all about what's inside of her. She says, and don't worry, I'm not going to sing. She says, the wind is howling like this swirling storm inside. I couldn't keep it in, heaven knows I tried. It's all about what's inside. That's what really matters. And up until this point, she's been living with an other's decided identity, suppressing what's inside to try and impress other people. She says, don't let them in, don't let them see, 
be the good girl you always have to be. She's been being a good girl, living up to the criteria, ticking the boxes for a good girl, so people think well of me because I'm living up to their expectations. But the whole narrative of the song and the film is she's rejecting the opinions of others, rejecting an others' decided identity and embracing what she feels inside. And so she lets it out. She lets it go. Let it go, let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. The real me has got to come out. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. I'm rejecting the opinion of others. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. Basically, I'm being true to myself the me who is inside. Elsa's a great hero because she's embracing an I-decide identity. This is who I am. Nothing outside matters. That's an example, and there will be many examples across popular culture and things we see in the world around us. But then in real life, it gets applied in various ways. In our culture, the most obvious way this gets applied is to experiences of sexuality and gender. We're told that actually what we feel inside in terms of our sexual desires and our sense of self as a man or woman is who we really are. This is why if you kind of look at celebrity coming out stories, if people come out as gay or as trans, it's not seen as a kind of a small, vaguely interesting update about an element of their life experience. It's seen as a revelation of who they truly, truly are because we believe that these internal experiences are our true self and therefore we have to embrace them and express them to find our best life. They'd be like the most obvious examples, but it can be anything we find inside. It could be a, a desire for adventure or a passion for a certain profession or business. Any kind of decision where we say we're going to shape our lives around what we feel inside, regardless of what things outside say. And this, again, is just a really common way that people in our culture, maybe some of us, are forming our sense of self. It's really common, but again, I think it's pretty problematic. Once again, you've got incredible pressure. This way of doing things says to us, only you can know who you are, because only you can know what's going inside. Nothing and no one outside can help you. And it says you need to work out who you are, and you need to embrace that and live that out in order to find your best life. So basically, this is incredibly important. You can only do it on your own, and if you miss out, it's all your fault, and life's going to be miserable. And that's particularly what young people today have been told. And I'm convinced one of the reasons for the heartbreaking mental health crisis we're seeing among teenagers particularly is the pressure they're being put under, say, to work out this is who you are, no one can help you do this, and if you get it wrong, you're going to miss out big time. The stakes are really high. There's huge pressure here, which is unhelpful. There's also often also unintended harm. You see, if we only listen to what's inside and we don't pay attention to the outside, even if we don't mean to, as we embrace the internal, often things outside suffer. Elsa is a great example here. We're kind of cheering her on as she sings this song of let it go, let it go, quietly forgetting that back in Arendelle, people are dying in an eternal winter caused by her embracing of her internal self. There's often unintended harm from this. Or say, actually, I look inside myself and I find this deep passion for business and I need to be true to myself and this passion for business. And so I put all my time, all my energy, all my effort into that. Inevitably, things around me are going to suffer. Any relationships I have is going to suffer. A spouse or children or friendships are going to suffer from my giving myself to all that. Probably my own health will suffer, actually, if all I'm doing is being true to myself inside. Even if we don't intend it, so often people or things get harmed around us as we embrace an eternal identity. And actually, the biggest problem here, I'm convinced, really, is that none of us actually believe this. 
You see, none of us are really prepared to be fully consistent on this. We can all think of desires we might experience or feelings people might have about themselves, which none of us are going to go, yes, that is who you are, you do you, you be true to yourself. There are some we say are ourselves and some things we wouldn't say are ourselves. Well, how do we choose between it? None of us really believe it. The reality is our culture is telling us the kind of people we're allowed to be, and then we kind of pick and choose from what we find inside to embrace who we supposedly truly are. The whole thing's a bit of a sham. It doesn't really work. It isn't really what we believe. And so it's hugely problematic. And so these two uh, approaches of our culture, neither of them can offer us what we're looking for, of a solid, static, life-giving identity. So we need to ask, is there a better approach? Is there a better way of answering the question, how do I find who I am? And that's where I think the Christian Bible has such wonderfully good news for us. A radically different way of doing identity, but one which is good and life-giving for us. The Christian scriptures say that who we are is meant to be based on what God says about us. That our sense of self is meant to be shaped by God's words over us, the one who created us and made us and what he says of us. I think you see that illustrated in the life of Jesus. Jesus' sense of self wasn't shaped by what other people thought of him, which is a good thing because of a very kind of varied views of Jesus. It wasn't shaped by what he felt inside. It was shaped by what God the Father said of him. And you actually see pictures of this in the Gospels, the, the stories about Jesus' life in the Bible, pictures where this voice speaks from heaven, speaking of who Jesus is. It happens at Jesus' baptism. He goes down into the water, he comes up out of the water, and this voice comes from heaven, Mark 1.11, saying, You are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. It's a picture of how identity is meant to work. God speaks and we receive that and it shapes our sense of self. Same thing happens a few chapters later, Mark 9, the transfiguration, that moment on the mountain, and this voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved son. God decides who we are. God speaks and we receive that from him. How do I find who I am? God decides. We receive it from him. And then what's the content then? If God decides who we are, well, who does he say we are? Well, actually, there are kind of, uh, I guess, two levels or two types of identity we could say God gives us. One is what I call human identity. The fact that every single living human being is created in the image of God. And that's true of us because of how God's created us, what he says of us. We receive that from him as an identity. And the scriptures show us that means every human life has inherent worth and value and dignity. And our lives are worthy of preservation and protection. We're worthy of uh, fair treatment of respect. That's an identity given to every single human being. But that's not the pinnacle, actually, of a God's decides identity. That's not the best form of identity we can receive. The pinnacle of identity, when God says who we are, is received in Christian identity. The identity offered to us in the gospel, in the good news of the Christian faith, that actually in Jesus, in trusting and following him, we receive a radical transformation of who we are. And we receive an identity not based on the opinions of others, not based on the things we feel inside, but based on what God says on the basis of what Jesus has done. That we become children of God, that the fundamental truth of who we are is that we are a child of God. And as a child of God, we are loved, we are accepted, we are desired, we are delighted over by God. 
And Paul the Apostle, one of the early church leaders who wrote a lot of the New Testament, talks about this in a letter that he wrote to a church in a place called Ephesus. And he kind of helpfully talks to us about this story of transformed identity in Ephesians 2, in the first 10 verses. And we can just look through it briefly to see how this transformation of identity takes place and what this Christian identity is like. It all starts, actually, at the start of Ephesians 2 with a bad identity because all of us start living in rebellion against God, uh, failing as creatures to give to the Creator what is his due. Let's just read the first few verses of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's saying we all start with our hearts turned away from God. We all fall short of God's standards. That's what the Bible calls sin, falling short of God's standards. Ultimately, we fail to treat God as God. We fail to give him the thanks that he's deserving of. We fail to give him the obedience that he's deserving of. We fail to live as the creatures of the creator. And the result actually is what God says over us. Our identity actually is really bad. We're sons of disobedience. We're children of wrath. Wrath is God's just and fair opposition to and punishment of sin. And he says, ultimately, we're dead. We're spiritually dead. It's bad news to start because we've lived in opposition to God. And that's where we all start. That's where we should all stay, but God. But God acts. Paul goes on, but God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the transformation of identity that is offered to us as God steps in and God's acts. acts. That as we trust in Jesus, if we choose to trust in him, to follow him, actually we receive a total transformation of identity and receive the best possible identity. Where previously we were spiritually dead, now we're made alive. Previously, we were children of wrath, rightly deserving of God's just punishment of sin. Now we're saved, we're rescued from what we deserve. And now we're seated in heavenly places. It's a total transformation. And all of this happens, all this is possible because of the work of Christ. Because Jesus lived and died and rose again from the dead. And this is the really, really key bit. This is the key distinctive of Christian identity. That it's not based on what we do, whether we do well or we do badly. It's not based on what we, how we feel, whether we're feeling good or not, or whatever is inside of us. It's all based on what Christ has done. And that's not going to change. It's based on what God says on the basis of that. And that's not going to change. Therefore, it can be solid. It can be static. It can be stable. And that's why this is so different from the kind of, you know, the classic self-help or self, um, self-esteem talk of our culture, where we're told to remind ourselves that we're loved and we're enough and we're important. But we're told to kind of tell ourselves those truths, but everyone around us is kind of saying, telling those truths to themselves, but thinking, but, but who says so? 
Who says so? Where's the evidence of that? I tell myself I'm loved, but what about when I feel so unlovable? When I'm conscious of how unlovable I am, I feel I'm told, I'm told to tell myself I'm special, but who says I'm special? So many people in our culture, we're trying to convince ourselves of things that there's no reason for us to believe is true. But actually, this Christian identity, this isn't trying to convince ourselves of things that there's no reason to believe it's true. It is true because of what Jesus has done and because of what God says. So much of it is the same stuff. We are loved, but I feel so unlovable. But that's okay. You're not loved because you're lovable. You're loved because God has chosen to love you in Christ. It totally changes it. It's totally different. And there are two things Paul has here in Ephesians 2, which are bringing home this point of this new identity isn't based on us. It's based on what Christ has done. He talks several times about us being in Christ, hidden with or united with Christ. So and this is Christ, and this is you. You are hidden inside of him. And so when God looks at you, what he sees is Christ. He sees Christ's perfection, his life, his death, his resurrection. And so everything that's true of Jesus becomes true of us. When I think of the idea of being in Christ, as Paul talks about it here, I sometimes think of morph suits. You familiar with these? These kind of um, spandex, all-in-one kind of outfits, which presumably you kind of get zipped up in, and you look at a person in a morph suit, and if you know them well, you can tell who it is, but you can't fail to see the morph suit when you look at the person. So you see the person, but you can't fail to also see the morph suit. If we're a Christian, God looks at us. He sees us, he knows us, but he can't fail to also see us clothed, totally uh, encased in Christ. And so he treats us not according to what we deserve, but according to what Christ deserves. God looks at you as a Christian and sees the utter perfection of his son. And what he says about you and your identity is based on that. It's not based on what we do. It's based on Christ and what he has done. As I notice in Ephesians 2, all of these blessings of Christian identity come in Christ. We're made alive together with Christ. We're seated in heavenly places in Christ. We're shown the immeasurable riches of kindness in Christ Jesus. It's all about what Jesus has done. It's all about our union with him. This motif of being in Christ reminds us the basis of this identity is Jesus. And also you might have spotted Paul talks about the grace of God. He says, by grace we are saved. And grace is the foundation of this new identity. What is grace? The word at its core just means gift. It's a gift given by God to us. And actually I think Paul gives us a nice definition for it in verse 7. He says, grace is kindness, God's kindness, towards us in Christ Jesus. And you've got to remember, there is nothing special about those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We had rebelled against God. We weren't deserving of anything. And yet God gives us this gift. Grace is a gift given to those who are utterly undeserving. Grace is not a gift from your best mate. It's a gift from a friend or acquaintance who actually you've hurt and you've turned against and maybe betrayed. And yet they choose to give you a, grace, a gift. It's a gift given to those who are utterly undeserving. A gift we don't deserve, a gift we could never expect, but a gift God can give because of what he's done in his son. Because on the cross, as Jesus died, he took upon himself the punishment, the death that we deserve so that we can be forgiven, we can receive this gift from God. The work of Christ is the basis of his identity. We can know it's true because of what Jesus has done. And Paul summarizes all of this in the last few verses in Ephesians 2. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, and it's the gift of God. 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says we're saved. We receive this new identity by grace through faith. That through trusting in Jesus, we take hold of the gift that God is longing to give to us. And it's by grace, he says, that means it's not something we do. So there's no pride in it. We don't boast in it because it's not about us. It's about what Jesus has done. We just receive it as a gift. It's received, not achieved. Remember, others decide we're achieving identity because we're living up to the criteria. We're impressing people. We're doing the hard work. It's not achieved. It's received as a gift. And it's not discovered within. It's not us looking inside ourselves, working out who we are, choosing who we are. It's just received from God. And notice really importantly, the final verse there, verse 10, Paul says, now it's out of this identity, on the basis of this identity, that we live. He says in verse 10 that we are God's new creations, his workmanship. We have been fashioned by God as new creations and created to do good works that he's prepared for us. Paul's saying that how we live flows out of who we are. You don't act in a certain way to become this kind of person. You're made this kind of person. You're made a child of God by God. And from that, your living flows. It completely inverts the order we tend to think. We now walk out the good works God has prepared for us. And so truly being true to ourselves, as our culture in a sense rightly tells us to do, means receiving this identity from God, being a child of God, and then being true to ourselves by living out God's ways, which are the ways for his children. And you can probably already begin to see why this is such good news, why this is so much better than letting other people decide who we are or deciding for ourselves who we are. It releases us from pressure. Remember, there is pressure to performing others decide and pressure to discover yourself and I decide. There's no pressure here because it's all received. It's taking hold of a gift given to us. It releases us from that pressure to impress or that pressure to work out who we are. And there's freedom from insecurity. Those other forms of identity are always kind of insecure. If other people are dictating who I am, what if I muck up or what if they change their mind? If my sense of self is based on what I find inside, what if my desires and my feelings change and I'm not sure who I am? Well, this is an identity that isn't going to change. It's based on what God says. And what God says is based on what Jesus has done. And neither of those things are going to change. It is solid. It is secure. It's the one identity where you can say, I know who I am. And I know that's not going to change. Nothing I do will change it. Nothing anyone else does will change it. It is solid, secure, static and unchanging. And that's so good because it's always a good identity. The best identity that we are a child of God. We're chosen. We're loved. We're forgiven. We're desired. We're important to God. We're delighted over by God. It's the best identity we could ever receive. It's what every human heart longs to know, isn't it? To know with certainty and security, I am loved. It's what every single one of us is made and longs to know. And to know that actually even on our worst days, we're still loved. On our best days, we're still loved. It's the best identity we can ever receive. And if you're a Christian here today, if you're a follower of Jesus, then this is already true of you. This becomes true of us in the moment that we trust in Jesus. We choose to become a follower of him. But it might be that for you, you're a Christian here today, and this is true of you, but actually you're not experiencing the goodness of this. You're not experiencing the way this impacts your life and gives you that solid sense of I'm loved and the security that can bring. And often, actually, even though these things are true of us, 
we're still living with other types of identities. That's what happened to me. I could have told you all the right answers. Then this was true of me because I was a follower of Jesus and yet I was letting other people shape how I viewed myself. And so I concluded I was a freak and a weirdo. You see, we have to be kind of deliberate about stepping into experiencing what is already true of us. We need to get to know ourselves and think actually, in what way am I susceptible to have a a wrong identity? Maybe for you, you're really susceptible to being shaped by the opinions of others. Or maybe actually you're susceptible to looking inside of yourself to try and work out who am I. And think also actually, what are the lies about yourself you're liable to believe? I now know I'm not a freak and a weirdo, but I also know it's like that's a weak point for me. If something happens, I know I'm liable to start thinking that way. And I need to be alert for that so I can spot when it happens and kind of battle against that. And I think there are two key steps to actually experiencing our Christian identity. One is to know the truth. We need to get to know what God says. You're never going to experience what's true of you if you don't know what's true of you. It's the reason why getting into the Bible that God is giving us is so key. Whether that be reading it, whether that be listening to it, whether that be meeting with others and learning from the Bible together and learning what does God say about me? What is this new identity? And if you think, yeah, I want to do that, but I have no idea where to start, well, just grab a Christian friend and say, can you help me begin to read the Bible and begin to think, what does the Bible say about me? We need to know the truth, but then we need to live the truth. It's like we have to take active steps to step in to experience it. We need to be deliberate about this. And it's kind of basically moving the stuff from our heads to our hearts. Moving it from something we know to something we experience and something we feel. And the key way we do that really is through all the classic ways that Christians have always engaged with God throughout the centuries and the past two millennia. Meditating on Scripture chewing it over, praying it, praying about our identity, giving thanks for our identity, asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate the eyes of our hearts to more deeply know and appreciate this, singing our identity. I'm convinced that singing does something to kind of push things deeper into us. Find some great songs like that last one we sang this morning, which declare who you are in Christ and take time to sing those. Make a Spotify playlist or whatever you use of songs that are going to help you to focus in on who you now are. And this takes time. It takes being deliberate. It doesn't just happen, but it's like God wants us to take hold of the gift and squeeze all the goodness out of it so we can truly experience it in all its depth and all its goodness. And we're letting it slowly seep deeper and deeper and deeper into us so it becomes that controlling self-understanding, the identity we live with. Truth requires an active response if we're a Christian. But maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe it's your very first time here. You've been here for a while and actually you're exploring the claims of Jesus, but you're not yet a follower of him. Maybe actually as we read Ephesians 2 together, you're realizing actually you're in the position of the bad identity at the moment. That's your heart is being turned away from God and you've never chosen to choose to follow Jesus and receive this new identity from him. My friend, today the good news for you is this gift is on offer to you. It's like God's hands are, His arms are outstretched, longing to give you this gift of a new identity. And all you have to do, the Bible says, is turn away from an old life of walking away from God and turn to trusting Him to take hold of this gift and to seek to follow Him. You can leave here today knowing that you are a child of God, that you are loved by God, and that that can never, ever change and that you can step into your true best life by living out that best identity.
If that's you here today, don't miss the opportunity to find out more. Why not talk to a friend who brought you, who came with someone, or just talk to someone who looks friendly, and they'll be able to talk to you or link you to someone who's part of the church to tell you more of what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is this wonderful gift that God wants to give us? Because God is longing to give you your best identity today. Maybe the band could head back up at this point, please. So for many of us today, this is about taking hold of what is already true but letting ourselves experience the fact that it's true. Letting it move from our heads to our hearts and day by day stepping into the truth of who I am is not shaped by what other people think, not shaped by what I feel inside, but shaped by what God says because of what Jesus has done. And we're going to have a chance to, to worship now. I want to encourage us to take this opportunity to meditate on these truths. You may actually not even want to sing, but we just want to reflect on who you are in Christ and ask God to make that uh, go deeper into your heart. Or you may want to sing as loud as you can to declare these truths, to be declaring them to your heart. And we're doing something active about taking hold of this as we do that. Why don't we stand if you're willing and able to just engage with God. I'm going to pray that the Spirit of God would help us now and as we go from this place later to engage with this. Father God, we thank you for these wonderful truths that our best identity is found in receiving what you say about us and the gift you want to give us through your Son, Jesus. Thank you that if we're a follower of you, we are a child of God. We are loved. We are delighted over. We are desired. And thank you, we're not a follower of you. That invitation is there for us today. And we say, Lord we, Lord, we long not just to know who we are, but to experience the fullness of who we are, to live in all the joy and all the security that can bring us. And we say right now, as we come before you, Spirit of God, would you work these truths deeper into our heart? Help us to be experiencing these things. And as we go from this place later, help us to be proactively stepping into all of what you say about who we are and all of what you've got for us in that. Spirit of God, come and minister to us now. Do good to us as we uh, draw near to you, we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.